Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Jessica Shields is an educator, licensed educational psychologist, and parenting coach who empowers parents by providing resources and support that takes them from guessing what to do to taking actionable steps. While she is a coach for all parents looking to understand the parent and child dynamics, she specializes in helping the parents of children with mild learning difficulties who struggle with confidence and motivation to learn. Jessica utilizes her company called Stronger Minds, Stronger Youth. She utilizes her professional experience and her podcast called Parent Them Successful to provide parents with resources to help gain a sense of control over their children's education, growth, and development. Jessica is also a wife, mother of four, who discusses how she leveraged her strengths in order to achieve her life goals. In this fun, insightful, and information-packed episode, we know you'll fall head over heels for this woman's jovial spirit. Here's our chat with Jessica Shields. Jessica, it's so good to be here with you today. I'm just really excited to be here with you ladies. I feel the energy and I love it. And I love the fact that you are in North Carolina, my hometown. I love it, love it, love it. (laughs) Former Charlotte resident we are speaking to today. Jessica, we always like to start with some get to know you questions just to help our audience get to know you a little bit better. So the first question is actually a fill in the blank, but we always pick for a little more details. So feel free to fill in a little bit, but Fill in the blank, motherhood is. For me, motherhood is a beautiful journey. I enjoy it. (laughs) That's coming from a teacher and Mm. she works with kids all day and four kids at home. So (laughs) you must (laughs) like kids. I like kids. I do. (laughs) You know, I love the word journey though. I I think it's such an accurate description because when you think of a journey, it, it is so long and it is typically life-changing. It is something that involves, you know, things coming at you from all sides, a lot of unexpected sidebars. So I, I think that true. is a, a very perfect word. That for is parenting. true. Maybe I'm feeding into the fact that I like things that happen unexpectedly at times. I don't know. I like that. <laughs> Yes, I am so with you on that. Although I have, I guess there's certain things that I need to be prepared for. And then there's other things that I like to be surprised on. So I I have a little bit of a rule book there. (laughs) Jessica, what do you value most in a friendship? For friendship uh, is, is just the connectedness. I really value connecting with others. I really value people's stories. And I really, really, truly value just how we can support one another. That's what I love in a friendship. And my husband is my number one best friend. So that's who I think of when you ask me that question. Oh, I love that. I I think, you know, marriage is such a challenging thing, but when you find the right person 
And more importantly, when you're willing to work at it, because mm-hmm. you do have to work at it to keep Absolutely. it fresh. It's such an important, really, or it can be, I mean, such an important relationship in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we're willing to let it. So I love that. This is a great question because you said you like unexpected things. And so I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat for a really good answer here. What's the most <laughs> daring thing you've ever done? <laughs> oh boy. No pressure. I know. Did I put the pressure on? I'm sorry. No, <laughs> I know what I want to say. And it's, to me, it's pretty daring. Let me tell you, I have four kids. Okay. And I've never had an epidural but I've had some type of medication for the first three. How about that last one? Let's talk about that. I had absolutely nothing. That was so daring and so hard. That was the hardest, most daring thing I had ever done was having a baby naturally. Oh gosh. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I'm with you, mama. I am with you. You go in it and you're like, what's this going to feel like? And then you're like, whoa. And then the next time around, I was like, put myself through it again. (laughs) Yes, that was pretty daring to not take um, any type of edge off. (laughs) Well, and then I feel like a lot of people do it in reverse. They'll do natural and then they go to the the drugs those final three times, but you did it in reverse. You know, you, you had a little bit of help in some capacity the first three times. So I think that's even more daring, you know, to take that, that last one and, and go for it. Yeah. (laughs) My, my hat's off to you. I, I, I had the medicine. So (laughs) Okay, Jessica, what advice would you give to your younger self? That is always a difficult question because it's like, you you think you want to give your younger self advice, but then you're like, well, things turned out pretty good. You know, uh, they turned out okay. But I would always encourage my younger self if I were to talk to her right now, I would say, you keep working on following your dreams, girl. You just keep going. And that's what I tell myself now, so. That's what I tell other kids too. It's so important to hear that message. Yeah. 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 So I I would say that speaking to my younger self is me speaking to children. Yeah. I I see that a lot in parenting. I mean, we talk a lot about reparenting and the need to reparent ourselves and how certain things in our children can trigger us. But I, I think about that often, how things that I say to my daughter are things that I wish had been said to me mm-hmm. um, and, and how important it is to, to keep that line of communication in your own head open. Like, what right. did I need to hear as a child? So Right. Absolutely. I've been doing a lot of work on releasing limited beliefs that I got when I was younger. I mean, it's amazing just the messages that you you absorb and then they just stick with you. So yeah, that was a really beautiful thing to say to your younger self. After a year or more, actually we're over a year now of speaking with various guests on our podcast, we've realized that an important part of our conversation is learning more about our guests and hearing their background story. We respect that Everybody brings different experiences into parenthood. Will you please share a bit about your childhood and how you were raised so we can just get an idea of who you are? It's so funny that you asked that question because that's not a question we typically ponder or think about 
on purpose. It might be something that we think about subconsciously or, you know, not really intentionally. So thinking about my childhood, as you know, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. And what does that mean? That means that I think I'm from the South, but someone in Louisiana told me that I'm not. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm like, yes, I am. So (laughs) thinking of African-American culture in the South and thinking of how I was raised, my mom is from a small town in North Carolina, very rural. So everybody's cousins, you know? So I grew up around family, a lot of family going back to visit being around people who are who I may not know and finding out, oh, that's your cousin. Oh, that's your cousin too, you know? <laughs> so for me growing up, I was surrounded by family often. Not that my family was, you know, huge. My mom did raise us as, single, as a single parent. She, uh, there are three of us. My sisters are 10 or 11 years older than me from her first marriage. I'm from the second and that ended in divorce. So she pretty much raised us as a single parent. But one thing my mom instilled was number one, independence. Number two, education. Independence, education, and lots of love and lots of lessons because my mom was a teacher, of course. Right? I'm going to get lessons along the way. And she wasn't a teacher when my sisters were growing up. Uh, she was, you know, had to go back to school. You know, life happened. But by the time I came along, she had graduated and she was working on her teaching credential and then she became a teacher. So always that teacher spirit. That's what I grew up with. Just that education is important. Community is important. And you need to be independent. You don't need to be dependent on anybody else for uh, getting you where you need to be. That's going to take you in the work that you do. So that's me in a nutshell growing up. <laughs> oh my gosh. It sounds like it was a lot of fun to be around so many people and just in a small town. I was also raised in a really small town. So I understand that there's pros and cons to that, <laughs> but <laughs> were there any specific events in your youth that directly impacted the direction that your life took? It's hard to even pinpoint one or two, but I would say that because I had teachers that looked like me, that was very important. And that doesn't happen everywhere. So having teachers that look like you, that can you can reflect on or that you see yourself in, it really makes a difference. So a lot of my teachers were African-American, especially in elementary school. And they were very encouraging, the same as my mom. And of course, they were my mom's friends. Because I did go to the elementary school where she worked, (laughs) but I was not allowed to feel like I couldn't do something. Like I was always encouraged. I was even even when I was in the reading group that was just a regular, you know, back in the day when they had the different reading groups, I was always in the regular. I want to know how could I get in the in the high reading group, (laughs) but I was never made to feel like I couldn't do something. That is what I remember most that I think was very impactful is just being surrounded by educators and community that believed in me and I believed in myself. And I got lots of awards in school. I had lots and lots of awards all throughout. I was highlighted in the newspaper because these people, you know, they they just put forth that 
that energy and that gift inside of me and they encouraged me. So it was a community that I, I was raised in of educators and leaders just pouring into me. They love themselves some Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing. And now that you have four kids, mm-hmm. I can only imagine how much that plays a part in how you're raising your kids now. So am I correct in saying that yes. the way you raise your kids currently is influenced by your background? Absolutely. My kids know that they need to be number one, independent. And even though my sons might fight me a little bit more on that, <laughs> my daughter is like, yes, I am independent. She's an independent woman and she's 16. <laughs> but independence is very important in this household. Like nobody's going to do that for you. You get over there and you're going to do it yourself. And I'm going to teach you how to do it. And then I want you to do it. And I have a child who's five. He has special needs. And, you know, I don't really share this particular story a lot, but when he was first evaluated by the school district, they slapped the intellectual disability label on him. Now, That label used to be called mental retardation for people who don't know, but it's appropriate in certain situations, yes. But what I knew about my son was that he did not meet the criteria. And it just so happens that I could have done the same assessment that she did and the same report because we had the same job. (laughs) So I'm like, no, that's not right. But it got him some services, but it wasn't right. That boy is very independent. He can do a lot of things on his own and he he even knows how to read. And so that's, yeah, so that is, that's just an example of something that is not typical for a child with that type of label. Reading at five is not usually something that they're able to do. But I say all that to say, that independence and education are truly important in my family and how I raise my kids so that they can be successful as they're growing and they uh, go along in their journey. Wow. I thank you so much for sharing that story. First, what I want to ask you is instilling independence in your children. Some moms find it difficult. I am speaking from myself as well. Because you try to have them do something themselves and then you're like, oh my gosh, this is taking forever or they're going to hurt themselves. And so you just step in. How do you prevent yourself from doing that? You said they might hurt themselves. I'm like, are they cutting something with a knife? Well, yeah, like (laughs) cutting up food for meals. How do you know when you can let your kids do something and not restrict them from doing it. Well, first I ask them, do you need a little help? If you do, let me know. I can help you. And if they say yes, then I come and I help. But other than that, they might say, no, mom, I have it. I got it. I don't, I don't need your help. Okay. Well, if you ever do, just let me know, you know, mm-hmm. or it's, it's asking for permission to help. Now, some things, yes, I'm going to do at the beginning, but after a while, you're going to have to learn. There's going to be a learning curve where you learn how to do this yourself. And I'll give you one good example. My oldest son, who's in college, he needed to change his major and he needed help. He he asked questions, mom, how do I get this done? I said, oh, just make an appointment with the the advisor. And well, how do I do that? It's on the website. Just, you know, (laughs) it's easy for me to do it for him, but it's like, look, you're 18, almost 19, you're, you're going to have to do this for yourself. This is what you need to do. If you have a question, just text me. 
And I just say, go do it. And he did it. And it's kind of like, it doesn't have to be perfect. I think that's where we get caught up. It doesn't mm. have to be perfect. But eventually he was able to do it on his own. He changed his major and he did it by himself. And I just kind of gave him some tips and guidance along the way. But I need him to do it because I, I I don't have time. <laughs> I can't oh do gosh. it for you. <laughs> That's a great example. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about folding the laundry. I just do the laundry and I, I fold it. And I'm thinking, wow, it's because I want the drawers to be neat. But if they fold it and put it away, it's going to be good for them to do it, but it's going to be so messy. (laughs) It's what I was thinking, like as you were talking, but yes, it's really important to have that independence in your kids and just push back a little bit on them too. I I just need to ask you a question. So what if it's messy? Like how is that the end of the world? I I don't know. (laughs) I know. I think this is a really great thing to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Let's dive into it. Not right now. (laughs) Yeah. But Um, it's just a question. It's just something thought provoking. Like, so what? Being able to say, okay, it's not going to be perfect, but they're learning and that's okay. And, And that's more of a growth mindset, allowing mistakes to happen so that we can learn from them versus trying to be perfect in the beginning yeah so that's another story that's thank another you yeah. I had my brief little therapy moment but you know what's so ex- <laughs> you know what's so exciting is that you also know child development stages because of what your work is so you're not only a wife and mother of four but you are also an educator you're a licensed educational psychologist mm-hmm. you're a parenting coach and a business owner and a podcaster <laughs> in there too. <laughs> you strive to educate and help others succeed, which is, is just so heartwarming because parents need help. I mean, we need so much help. And so when you were talking before about advocating for your son in the school system, I think you, you had said mm-hmm. where they were saying that he was this and you were like, no, 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 he's this mm-hmm. parents mm-hmm. need so much help navigating all of that. So mm-hmm. will you talk a little bit about your business, Stronger Minds, Stronger Youth, and your podcast, Parent Them Successful? And what pulled you to start your own business while also having your full-time job as a school psychologist? Absolutely. And I always like to let listeners know what a school psychologist is, because sometimes I get called a psychiatrist. <laughs> Like, oh no, 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 wait a minute. You just gave me therapy. (laughs) (laughs) A school psychologist is basically your mental health resource at the schools. So, we do a lot of special education testing. We don't diagnose, we look at education code to see if a child uh, meets eligibility to receive services. So, that's the main thing but we're also a connector for services in the community. So if you need an outside referral for counseling, um, say on your own time, then we can do that for you. We also provide counseling, group counseling for kids. We do all of those things. And of course, crisis intervention. So when there are deaths on, you know, with students or teachers or staff, and we support even adults, like it could be the maintenance and operations, 
supervisor died of cancer or whatever, we go out and we support the department and everyone who knows them. So uh, uh, we do a lot of things and wear a lot of hats. So I just wanted to <laughs> say that first so that people have a true understanding of what that is and what it entails. So yes, that is my day job, <laughs> if you will. And I am also a licensed educational psychologist, which is something that is recognized in the state of California. There are variations in other states, but that basically is more of me having the ability to do private practice work in doing similar jobs, uh, counseling, I could do whatever I want in private practice. I could say, oh, I'm just going to do special ed testing for private schools or whatever, or private, private clients or counseling for anxiety and depression, whatever. But it gives me an opportunity to do, use my knowledge and my skills outside of the school setting on my own. So that's what a licensed educational psychologist does. Now, why did I start Stronger Minds, Stronger Youth? Well, I see a huge gap in the education system where parents don't know. That's just a gap. Parents don't know. There's a big, huge gap in what they should know and what they actually know. And so I want to, I'm already doing it anyway with my friends. I'm like, you know what? There's a problem here when I'm talking to parents across the table or now on a, a video chat, Google Meets, I'm like, oh, look, this is what you need to do. This is how you get this. Have you, have, is your child uh, hooked up with this service, that service? Okay, this is what I need you to do. This is the role. This is the number. You know, I'm connecting them. And so they don't know. And sometimes I'm afraid that they've waited a long time when they should have started maybe five years ago with the things that I'm telling them to do. So the waiting piece is very detrimental because we know in our field that early in intervention is the absolute best intervention. So I started Stronger Mind, Stronger Youth to capture a niche where I am doing parent education and I focus on those who have children with uh, mild learning difficulties because th there's a huge gap there. If your child is more severe, the doctors are gonna automatically tell you what you need to do. But it's the, the ones that it's not quite easy to catch. That's where there's trouble. We had that experience, which was one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I wanted to start Her Health Collective with Chrissy. We both, of course, have our own background stories that led us to starting her health collective, but that was a big one is not wanting parents to go through the frustrations and the difficulties that I went through trying to get my child support in the public school system. Mm -hmm. So something I did want to ask you is you're currently licensed as a educational psychologist mm -hmm. in California, but your parent coaching Mm -hmm. can go across all state lines. Is that correct? Correct. Because I'm not operating under the license. It's just a business where I'm using my own knowledge and skills, including my background in teaching. And I taught English, so I know how to teach reading. And that tends to be a huge area of need. And I understand how to talk with teachers, how to get exactly the type of support that your child deserves if they're having a difficulty, especially with reading. That's the number one uh, problem that I see in schools is with reading disabilities. There are a few math disabilities, but it's mostly with reading. 
Mm. I also loved earlier when you had said that there are kids who slip through the cracks and that the school systems don't recognize as having issues. And that was my child. She was getting good grades, Mm. but we saw the struggle behind the scenes and we were like, something is not right. What do you think is the biggest hurdle? You, you mentioned early intervention is important, but could you talk a little bit about the biggest hurdle that you've noticed regardless of the state of residence, but the hurdle that families have to overcome in order to receive additional support for their children in a school setting? First, they have to understand and be educated on their options. And sometimes if your child is struggling, it may not be, I hate to say it this way, it may not be enough. You know, they're not struggling enough to be labeled under special education, but there's still a way to get supported through what we call a 504 plan. And so that is kind of my catch-all. If a child does not quite meet what we call eligibility criteria that's severe enough to need special education, there's still 504 to give them support. But parents really don't know the different levels and tiers of support that they can get. And how are you, how are you supposed to know that? You know, you don't, (laughs) most parents aren't working in schools. They're not seeing this day in and day out. So that's why it's important just to be in spaces where if your child is struggling, then you can be in spaces like a, a Facebook group and you can ask questions to other parents and learn And I do have a Facebook group. Uh, It's parenting from their strengths and not their disability. And so I have people in there who have that same exact situation. And they're like, I think something's going on. But then the teacher may not think so because they don't know that you have your child in tutoring five days a week for two hours and, and, and that it's taking so long to do the homework The teacher only sees what they see in the classroom that, oh, okay, they're doing fine. So there's nothing wrong, but they don't see kind of like that iceberg. They don't see what's going on underneath to make sure. Because honestly, I I can say this, socioeconomic status has a lot to do with access to those tutoring resources, ability to pay for those extras to mask the problem better. Um, but it doesn't make the struggle go away for the child. And so I've heard your story is very similar to a friend of mine's story and I helped her and we got what we wanted. Let's just say that. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) You were a little bulldog, weren't you? (laughs) I just knew how to circumvent some of the red tape. Yeah. So powerful. Uh, We actually had an advocate come in with us as well. And I have said over and over again, I have no idea how people do this that don't have those resources that Mm -hmm. also don't speak English as a first language. There's so many hurdles. You did have one actionable step that um, a parent could take. And you said, belong to a support group on Mm -hmm. Facebook or find someplace that can offer additional support and feedback to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are some other strategic actionable steps that parents can take in finding solutions 
to the different problems that arise with the hurdles that we've talked about? You know, I would always start with a conversation with the teacher, a conversation with school staff. If, if you feel like you're not getting through or getting far with the teacher, then you can have a conversation with the principal and come up with a way to address the issue. So always starting at the school site is a great place to be. But I like the groups because the groups give you more variety of experiences. So you can say, oh, yes, that person has a story like mine. And then you can talk directly. Well, what exactly did you do? And, you know, it gives you more support because I know we want that connection between the parent and the schools. We want that partnership. But sometimes I understand that parents don't feel completely 100% trust (laughs) with schools. So that's why I talk about those community groups as well. But definitely talking with the teacher is a good place to start because if you have a teacher who is really caring and they're good, they're going to notice even if it's masked, you know, they're still going to notice. So it's hard to say because it does have a lot to do with the quality of the teacher and just where their heart is for teaching and getting kids help. So just a side question to Mm -hmm. you, how do you know when you need to start pursuing other school systems for your child? Because the one that you're currently in might not be recognizing their needs. Oh, that's a good one. Um, sometimes it's not school systems. You can probably do a change in school. But if you feel like that school is not aligned with what you're trying to do, then look for other options. Private school is very difficult because they don't honor the, the special education piece like a public school does. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they don't have to. They don't have to, yeah, they don't have to have any of those services. They're not bound by the law in the same way. So it could be even more detrimental if you're looking at private school, unless you're willing to pay for private services on top of private school, which some people do. I have seen that. It gets to be a little expensive, but maybe it just depends on your budget. But in public school, you have a lot more rights and they're bound by the law that they have to carry those rights out. But instead of looking at school districts, I know that's a little bit harder to do, switch school districts, maybe look for a different school or program. And if, I mean, this is a ninja move. If they really give you a hard time, you just go to the school board, pick a school board member and and, and have a chit chat. <laughs> like nobody likes it when parents do that. Like, Okay, putting, what do you want? the gloves on. <laughs> she is. Wow. Yeah. That's... yeah, because we don't have time for that. We don't have time for games. Look, I'm going to try to do it this way. And if it doesn't work out, then I'm just, I, I need to go talk to a school board member. We need to have a chit chat about what's going on and what we could do about this. Because this is your child. And you're not being adversarial at that point. You're just, you've tried the traditional route. And if it doesn't work, then you have to go uh, way above, like skip all the middlemen. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just go straight to the school board. And that usually will take care of it. 
And I do want you to know that I did switch my child's school, but because I worked in a different district and I knew what school I wanted her at in that district, that's why switching districts worked for me because I brought her to my district and put her in the prep academy. And gotcha. yeah, mm-hmm. so that's, that's why. So other board. districts might have different resources because there mm-hmm. are schools that are restricted by the amount of resources that they are provided that just mm-hmm. goes down the, the, the funnel. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, that makes me think we've even within one classroom, you know, I, depending on the teacher and what the makeup of her student body, his or her student body, there are sometimes a teacher might have 15, 20 IEPs in one class. Some of those IEPs might be 20 pages long, you know, so much of your work deals with helping children with mild learning difficulties. So as, as was mentioned before, the kids that are slipping through the cracks, so maybe Mm -hmm. they don't have that 20 page IEP that's bringing it to the teacher's attention, but it's your aim and your focus to help improve things with their overall confidence, their motivation to learn. And that is such an important thing because there are, I mean, as a former teacher, I know, I remember getting my stack of IEPs. Some were 24 pages long Mm. one year and your folder that thick, you're flipping through them and going back into the classroom and trying to make sure you're checking all the check boxes and doing all the things that the IEP requires or requests you to do. And there are kids that don't have one, but a teacher is only one person and can only do so much. So even within that classroom, it's really, really hard, especially without teacher aids or additional resources. Right. It seems that your focus is often less on what children should do and more on what parents can do to help their child discover their strengths and build their confidence. Absolutely. Would you say that that's accurate? Okay. Mm -hmm. First, before we dive into that a little bit more, I would love for you to describe the type of child we're talking about when we say mild learning difficulties. I know we've let, you've mentioned children that are having difficulties with reading and that's more prevalent than those with math difficulties, but are there any actual, like, are we talking dyslexia? Are we talking, you know, like what are specific What do we call it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Want to know labels? (laughs) I I guess I hate saying, yes, I hate saying that, but I just want our listeners to know, like, this is kind of the type of of child we're talking about right now. Yeah. So I describe these children and I'll, I'll get into labels. I describe them as children who are cognitively able to respond to what we call treatment and intervention. Like they are aware of of their thinking and they can reflect on their own thinking and make decisions. So they're somewhat independent in how they are able to uh, navigate in general, navigate life. So yes, that would be what we call in the school systems, we call it reading disabilities, but out in the world is dyslexia sometimes. Uh, And it's not always dyslexia for reading disability but it can be. And then also ADHD, that can definitely impact their ability to pay attention to details and um, any any problems that they might have with reading. Say they're in eighth grade, but they're reading at the second grade reading level, you know, maybe third grade, which when I taught eighth grade, I saw that quite a bit. We know that if you're not reading fluently and understanding what you're reading, it's hard for you to learn about that subject. So 
through reading and it impacts math and math problems. So when we say, when I say mild, I'm talking about kids who can communicate to me. They're able to tell me how they feel about themselves. They're able to communicate and reflect on their own uh, thought processes and emotions. So that's what I mean by mild versus severe. We're dealing more with behavior. First this, then that. First, put your coat away, then you can have snack. You know, it's more very rigid behavior, what we call ABA or applied behavior analysis, where you have a registered behavior technician. And so that's more severe. Those kids are not going to be like, oh, well, Ms. Shields, I'm not sure how that made me feel. You know, I was really thinking that I was hungry and, you know, they're not going to be like that. That's, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not cognitively there. So mild, cognitively able to self-reflect and, and engage in metacognition, which is thinking mm -hmm. about thinking. Yeah. And so that was the word that immediately came to mind as you were describing that, mm -hmm. that metacognitive piece. What about social emotional pieces? How, where does that fit? Does that impact a child's ability to learn? Is that something that you deal with or help with? Yes. So if you think about confidence, confidence and courage going hand in hand, confidence, you know, you peel back the fear in order to gain that confidence. And so there's so much emotion that goes into how we feel about our own abilities. And as children who are struggling, oh my gosh, they tell themselves the most horrible things. Mm -hmm. And I, I hate to tell you this, I, I'm just going to say it. Sometimes teachers are trying to make them read aloud and they get punished if they don't. And let me tell you what the punishment looks like. If I have a reading disability and the teacher says, no, it's your turn, you need to read. No, you don't have an opt out. Then now they're struggling through and all their peers are watching who are reading just fine. And now they feel ostracized. So now on top of that, they already felt I'm not smart enough. Now they feel embarrassed about it. And it's painful. It's so painful. So we talk about social emotional peace. Yeah, absolutely. It's just making them feel more inadequate. So that's why it's important to show them those, the way that they can have small wins and still give them support in building their reading ability. And I'm just using reading for an example. We can still work on the reading ability. Maybe you're not going to be as fluent as the person in fifth grade reading at the 12th grade reading level already. Forget that, okay? Just need to be able to read newspapers and, <laughs> and comprehend at that level. But for, for young people, we know that saving face is huge. So it could create other behaviors like acting out. I have had kids when they get embarrassed by, you know, in a peer situation, they start using profanity or they, you know, act out in other ways. <laughs> so we see we're triggering their emotional, that emotional piece and they're acting out, out of frustration and not being understood. And so, um, is definitely connected to that. And we help build their confidence through my program that I, I use with my signature framework. We help build, build the skills or give parents the skills to continue building their child's confidence so that they are not acting out in that way and that they are embracing uh, any small wins and building upon that to build, you know, build who they are. I, I, I don't like to say self-esteem. I like to say build their sense of self and their ability. So in building their sense of self and building their confidence, 
you have a framework, you have something that you, you know, the signature program that you've created, you mentioned celebrating small wins. What other steps can parents take or what little tips and tricks are you willing to share with us that can make a child feel less anxious about their limitations and instead feel good about the natural strengths that they have? Yes. So first of all, we have to bring awareness to their strengths. Sometimes they don't even know that they're good at something. (laughs) And I have talked to countless uh, parents and say, okay, what is your child good at? What are their strengths? Crickets. And I'm like, yes. (laughs) And even for teachers, sometimes I ask and we need to, number one, bring awareness, (laughs) sit back, observe. What do they really enjoy doing? What is it they enjoy doing? And I'm just going to give one example that just really hits home. I read a story about a man. He's a man now, but as a young boy, he was labeled learning disabled, dyslexic. He would never amount to anything. He had ADHD on top of that. (laughs) Gosh, his teachers were telling his mom, oh, he's not going to be able to do this. He's not going to be able to do that. And she became so fed up with the schools. She just decided, and just mind you, this was like the 60s, okay, don't do this. <laughs> but she, she started taking him out of school every Friday, like, whatever, <laughs> you know, let's just go do what you want to do. Let's go have fun. So she would take him to this open field to shoot off these crazy rockets and film. He loved to film. So she was just feeding into what he already loved to do. And he did still get mediated for his, his reading, But it wasn't the sole focus of everything. But she took him off to the field. He created these homemade rockets or whatever he was doing and just filming stuff. And thank God for her and her wisdom and her focusing on what he loved because we get to enjoy E.T. and Schindler's List and things like that from Steven Spielberg. That is his story. What a good story. Oh my gosh, I love that. I've not heard that before. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Wow. So you see the power of the parent. Yeah. The power of the parent really focusing in and making the child aware of what they do well. Not that she didn't mediate or help mediate his reading, but she really put more focus and emphasis on the things that he enjoyed most so he could see just how wonderful and how gifted he truly is. So, I mean, the benefit of parents doing this work it's, it can be life-changing. It can literally alter the life of the child and, and what they do with their life. So Absolutely. that's truly a phenomenal story. I love that story. <laughs> I do. I do too. I'm, I'm amazed. I haven't heard that before. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw that you are the co-author of a children's book, Don't Feed the Monster. And I was really excited about this. I, I think it's so, I would love to write a children's book one day. I just think it's the coolest thing. There's so many neat little concepts you can put in there. And this was a really awesome one. In the book, three young siblings are constantly arguing. And I only have one child, but I have a lot of mom friends with multiple kids. And I know that this is a very common complaint. Uh, Cindy is over here, like nodding profusely in the story. The quarreling creates a monster that is fed by their growing anger. The monster grows as the siblings continue to fuss and fight with each other. The parents eventually call an important meeting to address the issue. Don't feed the monster is essentially a story about compassion, respect, 
and forgiveness and also addresses how families can strive to achieve peace and harmony in the home. And I want to bring this up. We know firsthand sibling rivalry arguments are a big issue in a lot of our families' homes. We'd love to dive into this a tiny bit with you. Why are sibling fights so prevalent? Do arguments between siblings have any purpose developmentally or within the scope of the family unit? Like, is there a reason over time that they have continued to exist? Is it just because they're in close proximity and close in age? And (laughs) you know what? The reason I love that story so much is because the monster is a representation of something else. It's a representation of the problem. So when you read the story, think of it as a, a, a representation where bringing to life the problem in some way for kids to really see it. So <laughs> sibling rivalry is going to happen. They're often competing and usually for attention mm-hmm. and placement, right? I want to be first. I want to be the top dog for mom. I, you know, they want that placement. You like her better than me because <laughs> we all want to please our parents. There is a gift in sibling rivalry, if you will. And that gift is conflict resolution. <laughs> Tell me a time you have not been at work and disagreed with a coworker, you know? Tell me a time you haven't disagreed on Facebook in the comments on a CNN article, okay? <laughs> well, I try not to read comments anymore. <laughs> you get where I'm coming from. Yes, yes, there, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of conflict out here in this world and you're going to have conflict with people. And what a wonderful way to learn how to manage conflict is through the skills that we learn as we're growing. And we we learn it on the playground. It it helps us with our friendships and how to navigate uh, friendships. So kids are fighting, arguing. What parents want to do is jump in and control the situation themselves. Now, tell me how many times your boss comes over to jump in a situation when you and your coworker aren't getting along, you know? (laughs) Usually they're going to be like, okay, so tell us the problem. How can we resolve it? They're not going to tell you what to do. And that's kind of the approach that I like to take with my kids. When, When they're in disagreement, they come to me. And one thing I like to do is give everybody a chance to speak. And with my kids, because they could talk, 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 I put my timer on two minutes so that each person gets the same amount of time to speak. If This is if they bring it to me. And I say, well, how are you guys going to resolve the problem? Because I'm not going to give them the answer. <laughs> and then they'll tell me what I need to do. And I'm like, yeah, but what can you do first? You know, I, I'm always putting it back on them because They have to learn how to be critical thinkers, how to solve their problems. You're going to encounter conflicts at school. You're going to encounter conflicts in the workplace, conflicts in the community. How are you going to handle it when it comes, you know, when it comes up or it arises? So what we're doing is we're building skills. We have to nurture skills of teaching them how to do things independently and manage their conflict, come up with solutions on their own, helping kids think critically. I think that's where we go with conflict resolution. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they're never going to argue ever again, 
But when we start helping them solve their own problems, then eventually when you're not around or eventually if something happens, they're not gonna come to you because you are already putting it back on them. And I have seen this with my own kids. Yeah, when they're younger, you, you give more guidance, but as they get older, they start going to each other. They skip you. <laughs> Do I go to my mom if I'm having a problem with my sister? I'm not going to my mom. She's in her 70s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to my mom to uh, work out my issue if I have a conflict with my husband. I'm just going to go to him and we're going to use my skills that I've learned. <laughs> So that's what we have to teach them. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, I have one child, I have an only child. So I constantly have concerns about she's not learning conflict resolution in the same way that all these kids with siblings are and a whole host of other things that come with being an only child. I myself was an only child growing up. So I, I think it's something I think about a lot and I did learn it over time eventually. I mean, I am fairly decent. I'm not a pro, but I'm fairly <laughs> decent at recognizing conflict and, you know, working through it. And, but I, I do think it's so important to put kids in those situations where they can practice those skills. That is a, a truly important piece, I think, that you get when you do have a sibling. And, you know, you just made me think of something. My son, who has a, a speech and language uh, communication delay, Sometimes I have to give him the words to manage his conflict. And so when they're really young in general, we sometimes we do have to give them the words. That's also building their skills so that when you're not around, they can go draw back to that and, and build on that. For parents who have a child who's very young, of course, you're going to give them a little bit more guidance. And the goal is independence over time. Another thing that I've noticed as our girls fight what feels like constantly. <laughs> we have recognized that they have become much more aware of their feelings. We had a situation just this week where our one of our daughters is struggling a little bit with the social dynamics of a couple friends at school. And she was having a conversation with my husband last night and said to him, well, I'm just getting so mad during the school day at these, these two girls, but I can't do anything with it. So I come home and I take it out on her, her sister. And that's just really uh, aware, aware mm -hmm. of what's happening. So there's also something that could be underneath all of that, right? Like the, the sibling rivalry could have something that's totally unrelated that's causing these issues. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because it was one thing I thought of and I forgot to say is sometimes the conflict, when they're having conflict, and this is what I do with my kids, I talk with them privately each so that they have a chance to really get their feelings out. And then we I allow them or I guide them to come up with a solution that doesn't involve the other person. So like in that instance, it will work out great. So she came to your husband and she is so aware of how she's feeling. And then maybe ask, well, why do you take it out on your sister? How else could you express your, your frustration? What can you do to not be frustrated? Do you have to control the situation? Do you have to be in that girl drama? That's what I call it. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you get to have a one-to-one -one and, and really help them think through 
their behavior, how they're responding, how they're treating others. Uh, is that the way you want to treat people you love? What kind of relationship do you want to have as you grow as siblings? You know, so just having a little small little session with them with with the other ones not around really does help as well. Oh, yeah. And it's so important because then they recognize not only that being at home with the sibling is a safe place to let out their emotions in a negative way, but that it's also a safe place to take their emotions to talk in a positive way, in a quiet, controlled way with with their parents. Yes. And they get time with you. Go ahead. Say Mm. that. Yes. That's what they like. (laughs) Yes. Earlier, you had mentioned about the importance of helping your children recognize their strengths. Mm-hmm. And on your website, there's a quote that you were able to leverage your strengths in order to achieve your life goals. Many moms struggle with defining their strengths and determining their unique gifts and special talents that they want to use to contribute on a, a wider range in the world. They also actually struggle with having clear life goals Could you talk us through this a little bit? Will you share how you were able to accomplish this? Um, Determining what your strengths were that led you to where you are today. And then how you kept your sense of self, whether you lost your sense of self when you had your kids, how you shifted things. We would just love to hear your experience and all of that. You know, it makes me think about how important it is to self-reflect. And if we're busy, 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 then when do we really have time to sit in quiet and think? So that's one thing to consider. And when we're really young, I had my first kid at 25. I don't know if that's really young or not, but, uh, (laughs) you know, some people earlier, but when you're really young and you're just getting started, and if I, even if I think back to high school, I always had the gift of gab and I've always made friends easily <laughs> and I'd be friends with anybody. I'm like, I'm friends with everybody. They voted for me for stuff. Like I was friends with a lot of people, but I realized, oh, I love this. This is what I love doing. That's how, you know, it's a strength because you love doing it so much. So I love talking. I used to talk on the phone for hours. That's what I like to do. So one other thing I always enjoyed was helping others. So I just naturally gravitated to certain activities that just I enjoy. So that's number one. Think about what you enjoy. What do you just really have fun doing? You can do it for hours and it's not work. Like, what do you like to do? You got to think about it. You have to slow down life. And I'm a Southerner. We we are slowed down. <laughs> I mean, because I'm, you're hot and you don't want to sweat or what is that? <laughs> I don't know. It's just like this way of life. It's just a way of life. And even now I have rocking chairs on my porch in California. Like, <laughs> come sit a spill, have some tea, lemonade, you know. But it gives you time to reflect, to sit around and talk. I I used to love talking to elders, you know, listening to their stories, just sitting and reflecting. You can learn a lot about yourself through someone else's story, too. But I think we can slow down and self-reflect. What do I really enjoy? And it's hard, especially when you start having kids, everything, all the focus is on them and what they enjoy. And after a while, when you hit your 30s or 40s, you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute, where am I? Who am I? I'm not the person I know I am because I'm doing all this other stuff. 
And then I guess that's why people have what the midlife crisis. <laughs> now, finally, your brain's <laughs> registering. Hey, in life, there's so much more. And, you know, you're in your 40s or late 30s and it's time to do something for you. And that's what happened to me. So right around when my kids were really young, I was just doing things to support them. You know, I, I did not want to be a teacher, even though I was, and I made sure I was a darn good teacher because I like kids, <laughs> but that wasn't my passion. That was what we call my, my zone of excellence. I don't know if you guys know about the zone, the zone of genius. It's when you're really doing what you enjoy doing. It's not work. It's so fun and you love it, love it, love it. Zone of excellence. You're really great at it. And you could do it for a long time. Zone of competence, like I can do it, but I don't feel like it in zone of incompetence. I don't know what I'm doing. Like me trying to do some plumbing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of times if when we're raising our kids, we might be in our zone of competence or our zone of excellence, but where's your zone of genius? You know, you have to really slow down, think about what you enjoy and start taking steps toward that and carving out time for yourself to do that and your family is going to support you they love you they support you and just start taking steps to do things that you truly enjoy it will rejuvenate you you'll be a better parent because you'll be calmer and more centered and grounded in 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 your parenting style so that's so important in my opinion find your strengths and leverage them by allowing yourself to sit and reflect on what you truly enjoy doing and where you, you like spending time. Yes, absolutely. Because your strength, again, is the area where you're good at it. It just brings so much joy. Uh, it's really that simple. Well, I have one more question for you. You may have already given this throughout our chat, but do you have a message that you think every mom should hear why, yes, I do. <laughs> parenting, let's reframe the way we think of parenting. It's not a chore. It's not hard. It's a challenge that we're willing to take on. And we're going to focus on the good things and be grateful for the opportunity to have children. Because we know that people are in different stages and, and some people don't want children, but some people can't have children. Some people adopt children, some people foster children, but like I have on my website, children are a blessing from the Lord. And if children are in your life in any way to just enjoy the moments that the journey brings, enjoy every piece of time that you get to share together and know that mindset is a big part of how you perceive your uh, your parenting journey. Also, what I wanted to leave you with is don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that mothers especially <laughs> have a hard time asking for help. It can free up some, some well-deserved time to do something else. You know, if you can have somebody else clean your house every so often, it's very helpful in freeing up your time. I wanted to mention mm -hmm. how timely that message was and how much I truly appreciated hearing it. Thank you. Anytime. So what are you reading and watching? One of my favorite books right now that I'm reading, and I love the work of Carol Dweck. And I, I know that people have heard of Carol Dweck and the growth mindset. So I think every parent, this should be given out like when you have a baby, boom, you're getting this book. 
Mindset, the new psychology of success, Carol Dweck, it will change the way that you parent. And I use a lot of her work. I use a lot of growth mindset concepts in my framework. (laughs) So that's an important book. And then just for blessings, you know, just to feel blessed and, and grateful. I'm reading My Grandfather's Blessings, Stories of Strength, Refuge, and Belonging by Rachel Naomi Raymond, MD. She's a medical doctor, but just, it gives you strength, just little little nuggets to get you through your day. Those two books are giving me life right now. They sound amazing. They I'm sound not watching amazing. anything. I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever do you mean? <laughs> And I do, can I invite your listeners? I am hosting some free workshops. So I just want to make sure I extend that to everyone. I do them kind of like in in chunks, but they can uh, go to buildingchildconfidence.com and I am doing the Building Child Confidence Intensive Workshop Series. It's a five-day challenge. And I do that every so often. So even if they hear this message and the challenge is over for that little block of time that I did it. There'll always be a new date with the next challenge on there. So that is just for, yeah, for, for parents who just want to get some extra deep dive nuggets of how they can build their child's strengths. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Jessica. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jessica. There were so many valuable parenting and life lessons provided throughout this episode. Jessica is certainly gifted at what she does, and her passion for life is contagious. We narrowed it down to three takeaways, but it was tough. Number one, her business captures a niche which focuses on providing parental education for best supporting their children with mild learning difficulties. Jessica started Stronger Minds, Stronger Youth because she saw a huge gap in the education system between what parents should know and what they actually know. She bridges the gap and helps them understand how to receive a particular service while simultaneously directly connecting them to the resources. She uses her own knowledge and skills, including her background in teaching, to assist parents. Sadly, some children slip between the cracks because they aren't struggling enough to be labeled under special education, but they still need academic support. There's no way that a parent will automatically know the different levels and tiers of support that a child can receive. Parents may notice that something isn't right with their child. They recognize the struggling, but they don't know where to start in order to get their children what they need. This is where Jessica offers her professional guidance. Number two, Jessica mentioned some strategic and actionable steps that can be taken in finding solutions to the hurdles that parents experience when advocating for their child. She said, one, a parent can belong to a support group on Facebook or find someplace that can offer additional support and feedback to them. Two, parents can have conversations with the teacher and a conversation with various school staff, such as the principal, to come up with a way to address the issue. And number three, if you've tried the traditional route, but it doesn't work, then Jessica suggests pulling out the ninja move, skipping all the middlemen, and just going straight to the school board. I'm sweating just thinking about it, but thank goodness there are people like Jessica. Number three, 
It's important for parents to bring awareness to their child's strengths in order to build their confidence and motivation to learn. What do your kids really enjoy doing? The power of the parent is about really focusing on and making your child aware of what they do well, putting more focus and emphasis on the things that they enjoy the most so they can see just how wonderful and gifted they truly are. And here's a little extra credit. Slow your schedule down and give yourself time to self-reflect. We are all so busy. By slowing down, this will help you get more in touch with your strengths, your passions, and will help you become more clear on your life goals. Hey, bye, friend. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.